This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Muck Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and Pete George from the Albion Analytics Twitter account. So it's three pods, three 2-0 defeats. I promise it isn't anything that we're doing that's causing this. But there are far more reasons to feel positive after this one, or so we believe. However, unfortunately, we need to park that positivity and start with the defining moment of last night's defeat to Sheffield United, Jake Livermore's 39th minute red card. Now, Pete, I was pretty clear about my thoughts and feelings on this incident on Twitter after the game last night. I believe he's let his team down, he's let his fans down, and it's not the first time. It's not even the first time he's been sent off in a new manager's first game. And I'm of the opinion that a player who isn't aware enough to realise that you don't show passion and commitment to your new boss by risking a dismissal doesn't deserve to wear the armband. And I would question whether he deserves to wear the shirt. What do you think, mate? Stupid. I mean, everyone can see that. It's on the halfway line. They aren't going anywhere with the attack. And he decides to jump in like that. And it was almost like a scissor motion the way he jumped in and kind of wrapped both his legs around the player. I mean, I can't see it being rescinded because it's dangerous to jump into challenges like that. Were you, were you shocked that, just on, while you've brought that up, were you shocked that we appealed it? Because for me... He, we didn't get his one at Huddersfield overturned, and I genuinely thought he was he was actually hard done by at, uh, at Huddersfield. I mean, when we talk, we'll talk later about the numbers around the sendings off, and Jake's on two this season. I don't feel that's actually reflective because I don't think in any way, shape, or form he should have been sent off at Huddersfield. But if that's the bar for not rescinding them, and I would say even Mowitz against Cardiff wasn't as bad a challenge as Jake made last night. I don't understand how we think this is going to be rescinded and I actually think we're running quite a gauntlet on whether or not they will give him a further uh, give uh, give him a further ban as punishment for the club making a frivolous appeal and I mean that's basically my exact thoughts I think we could end up with an extra ban I mean I can see a few fans being happy with that I'm not ruling myself out there but the trouble is that we've 
we've only got three natural central midfielders. Obviously, Livermore, Moat and, and Malumbi. Gordon Hickman played there against Coventry, but it's not his natural position. Reach obviously isn't a natural there. So, he, I mean, he's let let the fans down, let his team down, and not just for that game, but for the next four games. And now, if he continues with this formation, it's even more of a difficult situation because we we played with three central midfielders last night. So Bruce actually needs a, th- a third central midfielder. Now, as you say, naturalised central midfielders. We've got Livermore, Mowat, and we've got Malumbi. And then you've and then after that, you are talking square pegs in round holes. Reach Phillips possibly pushing Ajayi further forward, perhaps playing T- Taylor Gardner Hickman in there. But none of these guys are naturalised central midfielders. And then it goes back to what we've been banging on about for the last couple of weeks is you've got a plan for each for each manager. Under Ishmael, it didn't didn't matter too much because we're only playing two in there. So we'd always have, well, initially we had Snodgrass and Malumbi, but now we have Malumbi and Reach or Gardner Hickman or whatever he wants to do. But if Bruce wants to carry on playing three in there, then, I mean, we're in trouble for the next few games. I think what made it even more annoying was that he actually started the game very well, Livermore. And he was very aggressive in his pressing and started the trigger for a lot of presses. So um, the rest of the team would then go and press and they actually looked quite good, the press. I think it did look good under the previous manager at times, but Bruce has carried that on and Livermore was leading it at times. So, I mean, it was a real letdown to see him do something as stupid as that. Yeah, because actually when you look at his his numbers for the first 39 minutes, actually really good. He's got a 93% pass completion rate. He was using the ball really intelligently. He had one good shot from, from the edge of the box. He was genuinely being really progressive. It was one of the one of the best performances we've seen from Jake Livermore this season. Always when something happens around a player that you've already tweeted something about, there's always people who love to go on Twitter and dig up old tweets uh, of yours that you've said about people. I mean, first thing I'd say on that is that opinions are allowed to change. There's no law against that. But also somebody somebody dug one out where I praised Livermore. I think it was after the Birmingham City game where he won the ball in the middle of the park from a high press and set up the goal. It might have been Hull. I think it was Hull, actually. It was Hull. And anyway, I praised him. I praised him for that and basically said, Captain, my captain. And somebody came on going, oh, well, this is age well, et cetera, et cetera. I, stand, I maintain that. I stand by that. And I stand by my fairly staunch defence of Jake Livermore's performances, generally speaking, throughout the course of this season and to, a, to more of a degree through quite a lot of his Albion career. I do question massively whether he and Mowat in a two worked in any way, shape or form. But I thought in a three last night, I thought they really did. They really looked quite good. But my overall problem with Jake Livermore is if I can't trust you or if the manager can't trust you to complete 90 minutes, I really don't care how well you're playing at all. Because if you're going to leave everybody else high and dry out there with, with 10 men, it's three sendings off in two seasons. Two of those are enormously rash challenges, both in managers' first games, which I don't think is a coincidence. I think Jake Livermore thinks that the way to prove himself to a manager is to go out there, proper tub thumping, I'm going to smash into everything, I'm going to show passion and heart, and I think his head goes. And to a certain degree, it says nice things about his character, that he cares so much about proving himself to a, to a new manager, that he almost loses his head. But whether or not it's a positive character trait in the sense that he wants to be wants to be good for a new manager or not. I don't really care. The fact is, he is 
a liability in these types of games. He picks up too many bookings as well, which leaves him on a knife edge in, in, in too many games also. And Pete, I invite your thoughts on, on this. But for me, there is no way he should be wearing the captain's armband anymore because we'll come to the wider problem in terms of our discipline. And I think he sets an extremely bad example as captain for the rest of the squad. And I simply don't think he can be trusted to be to complete games of football. And if that's the case, I'm not sure he should be starting either. You mentioned his passion and aggression and just the willingness to impress a new manager. And for the first 30 minutes, I think he did it really well, did it spot on, um, was aggressive when he needed to be and kind of looked like a most, looked like the player that wanted to be there the most and the player that wanted to impress the new manager the most. But then when you go flying into challenges like that and basically ruining the game for the rest of your team, I mean, it's kind of a risk you can't take. You need to finish the game with 11 men. You can't play a whole half with 10 men and expect to go toe-to-toe with, it, with your opposition. Definitely wouldn't be against seeing him lose the armband, but my issue is, who have we really got that stands out as a, a potential replacement for the captain? Captain Carroll, mate. Captain Carroll. And he, to be fair to him, I didn't actually notice that he'd taken the armband until I saw him on Twitter afterwards, but he's a very experienced pro and, from what I've read, a good bloke to have around the dressing room. And to be fair to him, he had an excellent game last night. Yep, absolutely. And we'll we'll come on to Andy Carroll a little bit more in a bit. I think that's enough on on Jake Livermore specifically. Now, I think we've said what 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 needs to be said. I've clearly got very strong opinions on it, and I I, I appreciate Pete as well um, offering a bit of bit of perspective on it. But I think he's uh, equally as frustrated by our skipper as uh, as I am. But it is indicative as well of a wider problem. I tweeted last night, that is 15, 15, one, five red cards in three seasons over four managers. By the way, that's not three complete seasons, let's remind ourselves. We're in February. So we've still got plenty of time to get to get at least another one, two this season, seven this season, four last season, for the season before. There is a massive disciplinary problem at this football club. Even before the Livermore sending off last night, you see Alex Mowat only seconds before go into a challenge and get a yellow, which I don't think was a red. But I tell you what, he gets it ever so slightly wronger, poor English from me, apologies, but wronger than he did. And it could be. And we've already seen Alex Mowat get sent off for a challenge which I don't think was intentionally nasty this season, but he timed just that second wrong against Cardiff and ends up getting dismissed for it and probably deservedly so. There there just seems to be a massive problem at our football club where these players can't stay on the pitch. You look at some of the sendings off for challenges, Livermore's last night, Livermore's on Courtney Hawes. As I say, Mowat's against Cardiff was a risk he didn't need to take. And then you've got some of the general ill-discipline red cards. You look at the ones after the final whistle against Cardiff, which were compounded by the manager charging onto the pitch, I'm well aware. But it's not exclusive to Valerian Ishmael. And people seem to like to blame Val for this ill-discipline. I'm sorry. Okay, he, he, he certainly didn't help the cause after Cardiff, but it predates him quite significantly. Some of the red cards in the Premier League season were absolutely ludicrous. Kieran Gibbs on James Rodriguez. What is he thinking? Pereira. Okay, it's harsh through VAR, but just don't kick out, mate. It's absolutely unnecessary. So many of the red cards that we've had over the last three years 
are thoroughly avoidable. And I think that there is a discipline problem at the club. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think collectively, there is a mentality issue with this group of players. Yeah, like you say, we've spoken about that before, the mentality issue. Because it's the red cards, like you said, have been going on for for years. We had a few last season, like you say, that were just just unnecessary, just acts of stupidity, and that comes down to the discipline in the squad. So I, I really don't think you can place the blame on Ishmael there. At least not the full blame. Maybe his aggression kind of wound the players up to do it a bit more this season. You see, Livermore and Mowat are both very similar in the way that they dive into challenges. But I mean, Livermore's always been that way. I couldn't tell you if Mowat has or not. But yeah, it's stupid and, and ill-disciplined and it costs us in games because I think you said it was seven times, seven red cards we've had. Yeah, seven so. this season, four last and uh, and four the season before. But sorry, Pete, just just before you go on there, can I, can I just ask you, you mentioned about the the, the passion of, uh, of of Valerian Ishmael. Well, Bilic was very passionate on the, on the touchline as well. Is that just not a massive cop-out to say, well, the manager's uh, hopping around like a jackrabbit, so that means I'm okay to go and go and hurtle myself into challenges. That is a cop-out. And also, if that's the case, I'm looking at some at some of the players that, that were committing these issues. You know, you've got your you've got your Livermores three. I'm I'm looking at Gibbs as well, doing that against Everton. I'm looking at from the season before in the 1920 season, Hagazzi getting sent off for something utterly stupid at Millwall, where he gets a booking in the first instance and then boots the ball into the crowd and gets a second yellow. All of these players were players under Pulis and didn't do anything like this. So is it just a matter of the fact that that, that Pulis kept them all in check because, well, you don't cross Tony Pulis and that maybe as soon as you haven't got somebody who is so extreme in their discipline that we're seeing the, their ill discipline and that is not a problem with the manager. That is a problem with the players that if you need somebody who is such an almost nanny level of discipline to keep them in check. That's not that's not Bilic or Ishmael not being strong enough as managers. That is that for me is the players being weak. Um, I think one of the other differences between Pulis and, and now is that off the top of my head, there's been quite a big turnover of the squad. Livermore was obviously there. Was Bartley just about there? But the I mean the spine. No, the he squad, was. He came after. He came after. He, I think so, he came under Darren Moore. So do we do we even have any players apart from Livermore that were at the club at the same time as Pulis? No, not not now. But that's that's what I mean. I mean, I feel like I feel like these players, as we've built this squad, the squad was ill-disciplined in the second half of the Pulis season. You only got you've only got to look at the what happened in Barcelona to see that that as soon as Pulis went, it was it it was almost like party hats went on, and and the way the players were in in that relegation was atrocious some of the performances you think back to Southampton in the cup the the Leicester game on Astle Day these kind of performances and it's just spiraled from there and as and I feel like as new players have come in they've come into what is a very very bad culture and I honestly don't know how you solve it from this point because I, I feel like the culture within the squad 
it appears from the outside looking in, I've got no insider knowledge on this. I don't know any of the players anymore. As I've said before, the, the last ones that I, that, that I had worked with to have left were Brunton Morrison. But it looks to me like the, there, is, there is a bad culture that has been built up by a number of years, probably as well by not having a particularly strong captain figure within the club like we've had with the likes of Darren Fletcher in the past and really good, powerful dressing room influences like your Jonas Olsons and your Gareth McCauley's and people like that. Without that, I feel like the culture within the squad has eroded away to a point where we have ill discipline and players not taking responsibility for themselves. And that's part of the reason why I worry about Bruce defending Livermore after the game last night, because Again, I feel like it's a lack of accountability on the players. I think maybe it might have been part of Ishmael's job to, when he was brought in to kind of start to eradicate that. And that's why he wasn't taking anything from, from anyone. I mean, as soon as there was an altercation between him, him and Snodgrass, it was straight out. Something happened between him and Johnson and straight away he misses two games. So maybe he was told that there is an issue with the squad. Rumours about him and Ajayi as well. Was there? I've not heard them, but yeah, I mean, that's that kind of just goes goes along with the point that maybe he was told to just take no prisoners, prisoners, sorry, um, sort the squad out and um, try and change the culture of it. But I mean, when you've got players that have been there for so long, and if it's if this kind of culture has emerged from them and then spread through the squad, then it's it's a tough change. You almost need a completely new squad, and I think it kind of ill discipline and poor culture just kind of breeds more ill discipline because maybe the club gets a name for itself among players that, oh, you can come to West Brom and, and the dressing room's ours, you know, we have this many managers sacked and, and I just, maybe that's the sort of player that's been attracted. But I mean, like like you say, I don't know any of them. What I might be saying could be completely wrong, but that's what it seems from the outside. But it's, uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it, you, you're not saying this spuriously, Pete. The, you, the, what you're saying is backed up by what we're seeing. And, and I think the other thing, uh, to just pick up on your point there, is an interesting one. How many managers have they seen off now? It's getting ridiculous. It really is. Between, if you take this squad as really kind of being built at the point of Billich coming in, although there are, there are a number that, that, that predate that, not, not a lot, but Phillips... Livermore to name uh, to name a couple as I say Bartley came in during Darren Moore's reign as well I think Sam Johnston did as well but if you if you say that the the bulk of this squad was built through Billich then you in just two years they've seen off Billich Sam Allardyce didn't want to come back for whatever reason whether that was to do with the hierarchy whether that was to do with money available which we we then obviously found out there was not a lot of in the summer, but whatever reason, or whether it was to do with the players, but for whatever reason, he did not want to come back and manage this group of players. Then you brought in Ishmael. They've seen him off within a very short period of time. You've now brought in Bruce and he's managed one game and his captain's got himself sent off inside 39 minutes. It is really, really worrying. The level of player power that, as I say, it comes back to accountability for me that it never seems that they are held accountable. And I, I realise that's a really difficult thing to thing to do because it is a damn sight easier to replace one manager than it is to replace 20-odd footballers, all of whom are probably on more money than the manager anyway. So I appreciate why it is more dif- it, it is a much easier solution to get rid of a manager that the players don't like than it is 
to get rid of the players and keep with the manager. But at some point, we have surely got to look at this. And when you see manager after manager after manager not achieve what they should do, a a bit like I said to a number of Stoke fans a couple of years back, that at some point, when you look at your squad on paper and it's good, and you keep having managers fail to get you anywhere near where you should get to, surely the problem isn't the manager anymore. And I feel like when I look at some of the crisis clubs that I've kind of spoken to other fans of over the last few years, whilst sitting in my West Brom ivory tower as we flip between the Premier League and the uh, and the very, very top of the championship, I feel like we're one of them now. I feel like we're we're that Stoke team that people are probably going to tip to be up there every year and then we flatter to deceive. And the problem is not the manager because we've tried a number of managers. We've not got the results that we should do. The consistent factor for me, other than the running of the club, which we talked at quite a lot of length about last week, and I don't intend to have it as a topic this week. But other than that, the consistent factor is the group of players. And I worry greatly that they are not held accountable and they're allowed to see off managers time after time and just get a new bloke in. Yeah, and it didn't take Sam Allardyce long to realise that he needed a few more players in. I mean, Livermore, like you say, got sent off in Allardyce's first game. And then in January, we got Yokuzlu and Maitland-Niles both in centre mid. And I don't think Livermore played too much after that. I think it would have been interesting to see what sort of squad we'd have now if... Allardyce had taken over for the season and where in the league would be because I feel like he would have ripped the squad up if he got the chance to in the summer and just had a massive, massive overhaul. Potentially, maybe why he didn't want the job because he didn't, it was just too big of a task and he knew what the, the dressing room was like, especially after he lost it, the, the loan players that he'd brought in. Yeah. And it's, it's just very, very worrying. And I have to say, you know, I, I feel for Steve Bruce because I think he's inherited one heck of a task and ultimately I think he will do very very well if he gets anywhere near success with this with this group of players and on an 18-month contract I think it's going to be really really hard to overhaul that squad because how much money do you and it would take a lot of money to sort this squad out because you're not going to sell those players for anything near what you would want to sell them for given that it's at the moment it's looking like we'll finish mid-table I mean we've dropped to ninth anyway so it's it, it's incredibly difficult to see how you overhaul that squad in the next 18 months. So I've got I think he's got a heck of a job and I feel ever so sorry for Valerian Ishmael as well and I'm going I'm going to put that on record because I know it's not a popular school of thought and I know he was deeply unpopular with with a lot of Albion fans but I think he was trying to take a hard line with a very very difficult group of players and I think ultimately they rebelled against him because they knew that they en masse would defeat him. You basically say what I'm thinking, really. I mean, I think everyone knows that I was a, an Ishmael fan, so maybe I'm slightly biased, but I do think he had an impossible task with a, a very, very difficult group of players that he needed time to sort out and sort out the squad. Um, and now Bruce has obviously inherited that. So if he does get something out of the squad, then fair play to him. He'll have done a brilliant job. But it's just not easy to turn a, a squad around. Do you, do you think, example. just Pete, can I just say, do you think that's why he's defended Livermore last night? Because he almost looks at what happened to Ishmael where Val rather publicly took on one or two players. I think uh, I don't like the term losing the dressing room, but I think it's a it's probably a fairly apt term for what happened to him in the end. 
Do you think that's possibly why Bruce has come straight out and defended Livermore and appealed his red card, even though he probably knows there's next to no chance of us getting it overturned? Because he knows the only way to get anything close to succeeding, both in the rest of this season and in the next 18 months, is to keep what is a very, very powerful dressing room on side. I I think Steve Bruce has always had a reputation of being a very good man-manager. I think his coaches do a lot of the tactical work. Um, you kind of saw that with Graham Jones up at Newcastle when he joined, and he's brought in three or four coaches to Albion. I think a lot of that is down to the coaches, and Bruce is just a, a very good man manager. And Bilic was a, a good man manager with this group of players, and he may have taken a, a slightly softer approach with the with the players and been very defensive of them. Maybe Bruce is trying something similar. But the other issue is, if you lose Livermore as part of the dressing room, then we're down to two natural central midfielders. I mean, I don't think he's got the depth of players to, to be losing them, as well as the power of the dressing room that you obviously don't want to lose. No, absolutely. Well, look, we could, to be honest, we could fill this whole pod with debate about the squad and whether it, there, there is a real power struggle going on, whether these players are the problem and they're the ones getting these managers sacked and whether genuinely, whether you could put pomp Sir Alex Ferguson in charge of these lads and they and they might even struggle to get a tune out of them because that's what we're dealing with. But it would all be speculative. We haven't got inside a dressing room information, so I don't want to go round and round in circles. So let's move on to some harder statistical stuff, Pete, and let's just have a look at how differently we played last night or how differently you feel we played last night let's look at it twofold one offensively and one defensively at the, at the risk of nearly pronouncing that in the American way you can tell I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl on Sunday offensively what did you think about the difference I know you've got some deep concerns over the shot data yeah the um the shots was what was most worrying, really? I think we had two shots from inside the box out of 13 of our shots off the top of my head. So that, that would have been 11 outside the box. The average shot distance was 26 yards. That's kind of that's almost at the limit of where you stop thinking about shooting from free kicks. And that's just from open play shots. So obviously there was some even further back from, from there. What it seemed like to me was that it was a, a tactical decision. Because players just seemed to, to shoot whenever they got the chance. There were a couple of times when it, it seemed appropriate. I think you mentioned earlier that Livermore had a good shot early on. I mean, if you look at it in terms of expected goals as well, it was 0.06 per shot, which is nothing is you expect to score 6% of those shots. So basically what you're saying is the the data shows that if you if you took those shots 100 times, six of them would go in. Yeah, for, the, for like the average one. So, I mean, obviously the ones further back, it'd be even lower. It might be one maybe two. So, I mean, it's just, there's not really any value in it, really. You're better off trying to work the ball into the box and create a good quality chance where you're much more likely to score and risk that pass not coming off. I think you've got the numbers on where Sheffield United shot from, and it's just a lot a lot more value. I don't know if you want to mention that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because I, 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 after, you, after you sent me this data, I had a look at what, what Chef you did. And it's interesting because... They they had less shots than us. They had twelve shots, but 
they had far, far more inside the penalty area. You know, they, they had um, 58% of their shots in the box and 8% in the six-yard box. And it's worth noting that even of those two that came inside the 18-yard box, neither of them were inside the six-yard box from us. So the percentage chance of scoring is so, so low from what we're doing. And you, I mean, you've got to question why that is. As you say, is it tactical instruction? Is it a complete lack of confidence, which was certainly evident with Grady's chance. I mean, I don't know what on earth he was trying to do there. He seemed to think he had all the time in the world. But what's interesting as well is when you look at somebody who is clinical and a little bit on, well, more than a little bit on form in all fairness to him, Billy Sharp, he had the least touches of anybody in the entire Sheffield United team last night. I think it might have been the least touches of anyone on the pitch. It was close between him and Sam Johnston, actually. But he has three shots, all of which go on target, two of which go on the, go in the back of the net. And that, for me, is simply the difference between, one, getting balls into the area, and also, by the way, we are discounting there another shot that he had, which was on target but was ruled out because it was offside. So that effectively would have been four shots, four on target, three goals. That is one, the difference between getting balls into proper clinical areas and two, the difference between us having guys who probably don't believe they could score from anywhere on the pitch and you having a guy who is who just knows where the back of the onion bag is. Yeah, but to be fair, with the, um, I think it was the first goal, that was a, a big deflection, so a bit lucky on his behalf. But I mean, it's True, but he still hits the, the target, Pete. And it's still the value of getting shots off in good areas in I think he was around about the penalty spot when he took it I mean it's much more you're much more likely to score even if it is through a deflection from there than you are from 30 yards out so there's that and I mean confidence as well Greg looked like he had no clue what to do when he he got one on one with the keeper just seemed to take an age and he couldn't make the decision in the end I'd like to see us getting more more crosses in when we've got Andy Carroll in the box I mean he's a he's a target to hit and we used him a lot in getting the ball forward. I've got a stat here that he received 33 progressive passes. And to put that into, into context, on average per night for the rest of the season, Jordan Hugo was our highest with 14. And below that is Callum Robinson with 11. So we received three times as much as the average for our highest player. I mean, that was incredible, but it kind of highlighted the change in style. Johnston was responsible for a lot of that, just long kicks forward, long kicks forward. And I think we were kind of playing a bit more Route 1, maybe, from the early stages. Just kind of hit Carol and... Say that quietly, mate. (laughs) (laughs) But I think we tried to play a bit more football in the final third, just not to get into the box. In terms of crosses, we tried a similar amount, but I mean, I personally didn't seem to notice them very much. I don't know if it was just a lack of quality making them not stand out as much. Yeah, I mean, what also I noticed when I had a look at the the, the data and the heat maps and and our action zones, we we were much more balanced last night in terms of our action zones uh, between the right and left flank. You look at the vast majority of the games under Ishmael and all of the attacks went down the left. Well, uh, not all of them, that's, that's overstating it, but a significant amount went down the left. It was still more focused on the left than anywhere else last night, but the balance between the left and the right was much, much more even. But where the real difference lies is how much we actually get to the byline through both Grant and through, um, through Townsend. 
and you just don't get that from from the right. When you look at the heat map, pretty much the heat map down down the right stops about 20 yards from the byline. Now, there's two reasons for that for me. Reason number one is the fact that you've got Grady Dean Garner on that right-hand side, who is always going to want to come in field. So he's never going to get to the byline. Whereas under Slavon Bilic, you've got Grady Dean Garner just going past people on the outside and getting to the byline. And if he had Andy Carroll to hit, he would have a lovely old time. Also, you've got Darnell Furlong, who I don't know what has really happened to him because I did see him under Bilic go past people. And get and get to the byline and get balls across. I just don't see that anymore from Furlong. I have to throw it out there. First of all, I know he's our top scorer, but I can't help thinking that we would be better putting Grady in his best position out on that left wing, especially with Andy Carroll in the, in the middle, and seeing if he can absolutely have the right back on toast and get balls thrown into Andy Carroll. And I know you and I have a little differing of opinion on this one, so definitely want want your thoughts on this, but. I can't help thinking I'd rather see Taylor Gardner-Hickman in at right back because at least he beats a man. And then suddenly you've got a more balanced approach and you've got two players actually going past people on either side. I'm well aware with the two centre-halves, it leaves us exposed going the other way, but we're getting left exposed anyway, even with Furlong there. I just kind of want to see Taylor Gardner-Hickman go past someone and get a ball into Andy Carroll. And I just think we might suddenly start to see some goal output out of Andy Carroll because I don't want to say output out of Andy Carroll Carroll because I think we I think he's been actually been fantastic in the couple of games he's had he's about the only positive that I can pull away from Millwall and I thought he was our best he and Sam Johnston were our best players last night but you've got to get the best out of him and getting the best out of him means quality crosses doesn't it yeah it does it's probably the best if not one of the best aerially in the league so you get crosses in he's going to get on to the end of them as long as they go crosses and he's going to score your goals there he showed his aerial ability yesterday in receiving the ball in the final third. But yeah, we need to get the most out of him in terms of goals as well. There's no, well, there is a use, but you're not making the most of him unless he's scoring goals as well. He adds a lot of value in being able to go direct and build up, but I mean, goals win your matches at the end of the day. I'd also like to see Gardner Hickman on the pitch. I think I see him more as a central midfielder in the system that we played last night. I don't think he'd be as effective as a fullback because I think in the four you get pinned back a bit more or you should get pinned back a bit more. I don't think the fullbacks did yesterday, which is probably one of the issues we had um, defensively, but more on that a bit later. I think the trouble with having Diangana on the left would be that then you're completely focused on that left side. Diangana gives us something, a bit of creativity, a bit of spark down the right, which if we didn't have him there, then... I'm not sure we'd have anything down there. and that Could Phillips sure. fill that gap Maybe. if you move Grady across? Maybe. Obviously, he has to stay fit first, but then we lose Grant completely in that respect because then he can't even play on the right. I don't know how good he'd be on the right, but... But at the, at the moment, scorer. mate, I don't feel like he's producing. Uh, you know, you, 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 talked about, you talked about the amount of pot shots from range. I, I, think, I think quite a few of them, I think the most were from Grant, weren't they? Um, yeah, well, you say that, but then he did have a... A half chance early on when he stood up a defender, took on his left and had the shot that, that hit the outside of the uh, side netting. I think apart from that, do we really have players that are going to create themselves shots? Diangana maybe, but if you play him out on the left, he's more likely to, to create chances for someone else, which is obviously a positive. I think what I'm getting at is that Grant just offers us something that the 
other players don't a lot of the time. He's one of our few players that offers him behind a lot. Dion Garner did a bit yesterday. I think Grant does it a, a great volume and it's something that we need to, to stretch the opposition, especially when you're playing a target man that's going to come short a lot of the time. Just on, on Grant, because I think a lot of Albion fans have begged this question and we all know that Carlin Grant sees himself off the left. There's, there's, there's no denying that. He, he, he believes that's his best position. And to be fair to the guy, he scored 10 goals this season from, from that position. However, do you think there's an argument to say that getting him much, much closer to Andy Carroll, Andy Carroll, 11 aerial duels won last night. I, I was at the game and I was there to visibly see that the vast majority of those were Andy Carroll bringing the ball down on his chest. He was not flicking it on. He's bringing it down, but nobody's close enough to him a lot of the time to make any real advantage of that. Is there an argument to say that you move Grant much further in field and get him right up next to Andy Carroll and play them as a two? I was very impressed with Carroll bringing it down on his chest, actually. Um, did it a lot, like you say, and I mean, it's a bit more effective than just flicking it onto to empty space. I think maybe we could try it. It depends what Bruce wants to do, really. I think that would force us to go into a 4-4-2 if he wants to persist with the for at the back, which I personally don't think is the best idea and would rather see us go back to a three. And in that case, then maybe he could look at playing a three, five, two, or even a narrower three, four, three, where Grant still comes off the left, but he's just operates a lot closer to Carroll. I think it'd be nice to see, see him close to receive the, the chest down and make runs in, in behind him that Carroll can then find him. You mentioned about the defensive formation there, and obviously last night was four at the back uh, as opposed to three centre-halves, which we've played all season. I know there was a lot of call from the fans to move away from three centre-halves. There's been a lot of talk of, we don't need to play three centre-halves in this division. We're we're better than that, et cetera, et cetera. I have to say, Pete, I don't think the first goal happens with three centre-halves. We just lacked a lot of cover. The centre-backs were, they were getting drawn out into areas that you can't get drawn out to as a back four because... You're just going to isolate your centre-back partner. As a back three, you've got a bit more cover because you've obviously got the, the two centre-backs to cover you if you go man-marking a man that pulls you wide or pulls you short. But then we also like the cover in front of the defence. We seem to, the midfield seems to play a lot higher up. Well, not a lot higher up, but they just seem to leave a massive gap between the defence when we're defending, between the lines of midfield and the lines of defence, which kind of forces the centre-backs to have to follow the strikers that drop short because otherwise they're just going to receive in between the lines in acres of space. And as soon as they go following that that forward, then they leave massive spaces in behind in the defensive line, which is just easy to pick off. Is that really, is that really, really strange? Because when you look at personnel, last time we are in this division, we played four at the back. And of that personnel, OK, Bartley was... Uh, ill last night and by the way uh, I think both Pete and I would like to put on record really wishing Carl Bartley a very swift recovery because I I heard what Steve Bruce said in the press conference yesterday about Bartley having to be rushed into hospital and fortunately being discharged later on but it sounds really horrible and we do wish Carl Bartley a very very swift recovery because that, that that is awful and goes far beyond football that's you know somebody's health but Going back to the defence, when you look at the personnel, Bartley wasn't there last night, but the rest of them, Ajay, played centre-half in a four at this level before for us. Same with Townsend, same with Furlong, same with Johnston behind them, and same in front of them with Livermore as the sitting midfielder. And yet, the only so the only change is Clark for Bartley, and yet we look completely exposed. When we were attacking, we were attacking with both fullbacks playing playing higher. 
which obviously leaves the two centre-backs. And then Mowat in, in front of them, I don't think it suits Mowat at all. I think he's too slow for that role and dives into challenges, which takes him out of the game. When Sheffield United last night were in transition, um, countering, he's just too slow and takes himself out of the game too easily. And then it's just the two the two centre-backs that are defending, basically. I think under Billich, a lot of the time, we kind of left three back. So if Furlong went forward, then the left back, which as long as I've not got my seasons wrong, I think a lot of the time was, I think Ferguson played there quite a few times when Gibbs was injured. And he would tuck across to kind of form three when we were attacking just to provide that, that safety net basically against counter-attacks. Yeah, and he moved, was... he also moved he moved Furlong there sometimes because, he because uh, I mean, Dara finished the season playing right back as well. Yeah, exactly. But I think generally we'd have three defenders back and probably Livermore sitting in front of them. So we've got that, that safety net defenders as well as the, the man in front of them protecting them that bit more. So I think that's where the issues lie against the counter-attacks. And then just in possession, I think the gaps between the defensive and midfield lines were too big, making it too easy for players to drift into there and either pick up the ball or drag the centre-backs out. Maybe at times the full-backs were too wide, which then left spaces in between the centre-back and the full-back, which, again, can be used to either pull the centre-back out of position and leave a massive gap in the middle or just to make runs into and kind of receive in that, that half space there, which is a dangerous position to be in. I just think it lacked any tactical organisation, to be honest. Which is very much a worry. I mean, obviously, Bruce hasn't had that long to work with the players or get his ideas into them. But nonetheless, is the long and short of what we're saying when we cut through the the data and when we cut through the, the performance analysis, Pete, it's long and short of what we're saying that... Okay, the fans have been crying out for more offensive football, for us to create more chances, for us to score more goals, get all of that, and to also play a bit more progressively and a bit prettier. But equally, it's worth remembering that under Valerian Ishmael, we had the best defensive record in the division, and that there is a definite concern here that whilst we do want to improve things going forward, that you've got to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and not ruin what has been a very, very successful defensive unit in pursuit of more attacking football. Spot on. I think if we carry on in that formation playing like we did with those players in the positions that they played, then we'll concede a lot of goals to win now at the end of the season. And one of the things that Ishmael did extremely well with this squad is, is have that defensive stability and have a strong at the back and not conceding many goals. Because if you don't concede goals, then a good start to do well in the league Gives you a much better chance of winning games, obviously. And I'd love to see this score a load of goals, but probably not at the expense of conceding a load of goals along with it. Yeah, and in terms of scoring the goals, probably part of the problem there is that this is a squad built for Valerian Ishmael. It was built with two midfielders in mind. And last night we played Adam Reach as the number 10, obviously in what would in Bilic's system have very much looked like the Pereira role. The reality is that Reach in that position, in that system, although he did do good, some good things last night, and I do want to say he did some good things in that position, some of the forward passes, some uh, he played more through balls than, than anybody else. He also took the equal amount of bad touches where he gave the ball away, which was four in the game. And as a central midfielder, you just cannot be doing that because you should be 
receiving the ball in an area where you are able to actually take that touch and progress with the ball. So I do think he is a square peg in a round hole. But Pete, the reality is we haven't got any round pegs, have we? Probably not. I think it would kind of rotate the midfield between a, um, what you could call as a 4-2-3-1 with Richards as number 10 and a bit more of sometimes like an upside-down triangle with Moat at the base and then Livermore and Reach playing kind of level. So I think it kind of varied. I don't think Reach was an out-and-out attacking midfielder, 10, whatever you want to call it. I think what he did do quite well is he made quite a lot of runs in behind, which I kind of mentioned earlier is what you need when you've got Andy Carroll that's going to drop short for balls. You're not going to expect Andy Carroll to be chasing down through balls. So you need someone to, to offer him behind and kind of stretch that defensive line and make him play a little bit deeper. Like you said, he also played some some nice balls forward. There was the one to Dean Garner that sent him through. I don't know if it was onside or not. I've not, not seen, but it was given as onside in the game. And Dean Garner. I was going to say it wouldn't have mattered if he put it in the back of the blooming no, exactly. net. <laughs> and it was it was a brilliant pass. So I think it, I think he did do some. There were some positives to take from it, and I'd have been interested to see how he got on for the rest of the game if we kept that extra man in midfield. But it wasn't to be, was it? With Jake Livermore stupidly getting sent off. No, absolutely. But on this podcast, we do like to try, even in the darkest of times, and it does feel like the darkest of times after three consecutive defeats, to finish on positives. Now, we've already talked about one big positive, and Captain Carroll certainly was a positive last night. Definitely a captain's performance from him, which we didn't get from Livermore. He led the team forward. I thought he was absolutely tremendous. I thought he worked so hard. I thought he was out on his feet at the end. I thought he gave everything to the cause. Sam Johnston, yet again, yet again, reaffirming that what on earth he is doing in this division, I do not know. He's not just a Premier League goalkeeper. He is, for me, a top six top eight uh, Premier League goalkeeper. I think he's probably the best English goalkeeper, certainly after watching Pickford this week. I, I, I don't see any reason to, to to decide against that. But And the other one, Pete, that, that I think when we talk about the mentality of this squad and, the pro, and a problem dressing room, as we've discussed earlier on in the pod, what you need if you've got that is the players on side. And what I would say after seeing the players throw the towel in big style at Millwall for Ishmael, offer nothing at all against Preston in terms of response to either goal. There was a big response last night, in all fairness. And I thought the backs-to-the-wall display... Actually, that's not fair. It wasn't a backs-to-the-wall display in the second half because I actually thought we were on the front foot for quite a lot of it. Okay, they were hitting us on the break and Sam was having to be unbelievable to keep them out. But I thought up until Billy Sharp whips in the second goal with a fantastic finish, nothing you can do about... Well, there's a bit you can do about that. A joy can cut the ball out across. But but I thought the, the commit from, commitment from the players was something that we hadn't seen in the last two games. We hadn't seen a response to going behind in the last two games. And OK, it wasn't to be that we didn't get back in the game. But if we are looking for positives, and we are looking for positives, Pete, because I need to feel a bit happier about my football team at the moment. If we're looking for positives, then there has to be positivity to be found in the fact that this time we saw a response to going behind. Yeah, and to echo what you said, Sam Johnson, absolutely brilliant, made some incredible saves. The one against uh, Indai, I think he was running through and he stood him up and tipped it around the post. Absolutely brilliant save. And then there was that double save as well. That I mean, he 
kept us in the game, even when it looked like we were kind of out of it. Players did look to be playing a bit more, a bit more enthusiasm in what they were doing. They didn't seem as disheartened on the pitch. Watching them at, at Millwall, a lot of them seemed to be playing with their heads down, not really looking like they wanted to be there. And there was that response, like you said, when um, Sheffield United scored. We did go out and try and play and attack, even with 10 men. So that's a positive. And one final positive to mention is Dario Shea coming back. I think he's a brilliant player, one that I really like, and hopefully we'll see him a bit more now. There we go. Positives. Positives all over the show. It might be three defeats in a row. It might be ninth in the table, but there's positives, and that's what we wanted. Right. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you for listening. We'll be back after the Valentine's Day clash with Blackburn when we hope we've all fallen back in love with the baggies. If you're feeling enamoured with this pod, then show us some love with a like, a share or a positive rating. And please tweet us, follow us at AnalyticsWBA and at CJHall83. And also let us know if there's anything you want us to cover, any thoughts you've got on what we've said. Tweet us and we will happily do some fan interaction on the pod. But for now, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.